It's, uh, it's good to be together this morning. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas, and we are so glad to be together, so glad to be um, gathered in the name of Jesus this morning. And uh, as we are gathered this morning, we are going to be looking at uh, John chapter 17, John chapter 17, and particularly in uh, verse 17 of chapter 17 there. Um, Trevin Wax, in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, well illustrates the, the problem of potential drift in the Christian life. Uh, you may have had this kind of experience before, uh, particularly if you're a beach person, if you enjoy the kinds of vacations where you can just kind of plop yourself on a beach somewhere, dive into a good book, uh, doze off into some light sleep, uh, construct sandcastles in the sand. That all sounds pretty good right about now, I'm sure. Uh, and and if, if you like this kind of vacation, you might at some point make your way out into the ocean to cool off or to see how far you can swim out into the ocean. That's a fun kind of contest to do, or to get, just get some exercise or whatever. And after spending some time out in the water, you might happen to look back on the beach, and to your surprise, you can't find any of your stuff. It seems like all your stuff is missing. It's not where you left it. Your, your chairs, your towels, umbrellas, someone has taken them or moved them. And then just after a few moments of minor panic, you realize that your stuff is actually all right where you left it. It's you who has moved. Being caught up in what you were doing, you actually were caught up in a current and you were drifting down the beach depending on how long you're in the water or how strong the current is, you could be pretty far from your original location. Wax reflects on this writing that drifting is natural. Unless you keep checking where you are or work against the current, you can easily wind up far from where you started. In other words, oddly enough, doing nothing can result in movement. Unless you actively oppose the drift you'll end up somewhere you didn't intend to be. Last week, we, we started a, a sermon series as part of our church's efforts to actively oppose this kind of drift in our lives. This series is called Let Us Hold Fast, citing the words of Hebrews 4.14 and 10.23, where we're exhorted to, to hold fast to our confession of faith, to, to hold fast to biblical teaching and theology, to hold fast to the truth. And this series was initially planned in response to the, the State of Theology report released by Ligonier and Lifeway Research late last year. And that report was based on a, a survey of uh, kind of theological statements uh, that the general population of the United States, as well as smaller subcultures therein, responded to either in agreement or disagreement. And areas of concern for your, your elders here were some of those responses, those who identified as evangelical Christians or, or, or gospel Christians. The word evangelical means gospel. And many people who identify as gospel Christians are, are far from it, responding to theological statements regarding things like the divinity of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ's salvation, the unchangeableness of God, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and more, 
in ways that clearly contradict the Bible and in ways that are a radical departure from what Christians have collectively confessed for the last 2,000 years. In other words, there are churches like ours all across the United States when people are drifting away from biblical Christianity, and our desire is to help equip our church to actively oppose that drift. We want our church to heed the words of Hebrews 2.1, to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, one of the statements in that survey has resulted in our subject today. Statement 16 of the survey said this, the Bible like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And to this statement, about a quarter of those professing to be gospel Christians, most of them strong, about most of that quarter, about 23% of that strongly agreed, and about 3% somewhat agreed. About a quarter of the people Attending churches like ours all across the United States believe the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but not that it is literally true. And in a series wherein we're seeking to explore and learn what the Bible says about these various issues raised in our day, we should probably put this question near the top. Because if the Bible isn't trustworthy, and it doesn't really matter what it says, But if it is true and it is trustworthy and is authoritative, then we need to follow it wherever it leads us on the various other questions we're going to be asking in this series. So the question we want to ask this morning is, should we take the Bible literally? Should we take the Bible literally? Now, as you might expect, we should probably have something of a nuanced answer to that question. But, but first, we, wanna, we, wanna, we, want, we just want to go to Jesus. We want to see what he has to say about the Bible. And then we're going to let that inform and control our answer to this question. So the passage we're looking at this morning, John 17, 17, we're looking at that particular verse, but we're also going to read the surrounding verses from verses uh, 9 to 19. And the reason that we do that is because verse 17 is within a context. We want to read it within its context And the context of this passage here is that Jesus is is praying, okay? This is what we we often call Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's recorded for us in John's gospel, and it's one that Jesus prays prior to his betrayal, his suffering, his death, his victory over death. And and in verses 1 to 8, Jesus is praying for himself, as you might expect him to, as he's about to go through this, this passion. In verses 20 to 26, Jesus is praying for his church, those who would come to believe in him in the future. And in verses 9 to 19, Jesus is praying for his disciples, the 12. And particularly as it pertains to their being set apart and preserved and for their living on this Christian mission, he's sending them on. And so that's the context. And with that in mind, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen together with reverence and relish to these words prayed by Jesus just before his passion. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but They are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious Father, you are true, you are unerring, you are infallible in all of your perfections. And because of that, your word is true. More, your, your word is truth. It's truth that we so desperately need. Since as we, as we saw last week, as Pastor Brian preached last week, and we saw in your word that we're prone to sin, prone to wander, prone to suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. And so we need an unfallible and unerring guide to the truth. Thank you for giving us that in your word. And we ask this morning that you would help us by your spirit to know, to believe, to be assured of your word here. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life for us. Amen. You can be seated. So friends, should we take the Bible literally? Should we take it literally? Now, ordinarily, when we're confronted with such a question, we we need to do a bit of inquiry, right? The question itself needs to be questioned. It's a very common question, and, and two people might very well mean completely different things even when asking the same question. For example, if at some point in your community group, you find yourself uh, studying Isaiah 51, which very well could happen. You come across verse 9 of Isaiah 51, which says, Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. Lord, awake is in the days of old. If someone hears that in your group and they say, wow, is that literal? Like, does God literally have an arm? Is that, should we read the Bible literally here? Well, if you know your Bible well, the answer is no. We should not take that particular text literally. We know from John 4, 24 that literally God is spirit. He's not a material being. He's pure spirit. God doesn't literally have an arm. And so Isaiah 51 9 is obviously speaking about God's arm in a metaphorical sense, which reveals something true. It reveals something even literally true. But the words themselves are not supposed to be interpreted literally. That passage is revealing a literal truth about God's saving and redeeming power in the Exodus being enacted again among his people in the gospel. But it's using a metaphor, something non literal, to reveal that truth. 
And so when people ask the, 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 the question in this sense, they're asking a question about the Bible's interpretation. And if that's the case, when asked if we interpret the Bible literally, the answer is that it depends. And that's because in order to take the Bible seriously, we don't always interpret it literally. Instead, we always interpret the Bible literarily, right? We want to take the kind of literature we're reading in the Bible into account. The Bible's a book with a library of books within it, and there's several different kinds of genre within it. And, 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 and just as in our everyday, ordinary lives, we don't read a poem in the same way that we read a historical biography, or a letter from a loved one in the same way that, that we read a sci-fi novel, so we don't read a psalm in the same way that we do a historical book, or a parable in the same way that we do one of Paul's letters. Do we interpret the Bible literally? Sometimes. There are historical books in the Bible that are meant to be interpreted literally. And so we do. We, we, books like Exodus, First and Second Kings, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those books are intended to be received as literal historic accounts of events that truly happened. And so we interpret them as such. But then there are other parts of the Bible that are poetic, like the Psalms, or like the Song of Songs, or like parts of Job and the Prophets. Even the historical books that we read sometimes have parts in them that we don't interpret literally, like the parables in the Gospels. Sometimes uh, the Bible uses metaphor, like the uh, verse in Isaiah we just mentioned. There's apocalyptic literature in the Bible, like parts of Daniel and Revelation. There are certain genres in the Bible that if we want to read the Bible well and take it seriously, we do not interpret literally because they're not meant to be understood that way. Now, sometimes this question, should we take the Bible literally, means something entirely different. I remember years ago, after Bill O'Reilly released that book uh, about the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, he was being interviewed uh, about the book, and there's some controversial takes he had. Uh, in, the, in the interview, O'Reilly claimed that some of the details in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion were not historically accurate. All right, And so the interview asked him, Bill, you know, you're telling us that parts of the Bible are not true, and you can imagine that people are at home going, well, you know, Bill says the Bible is wrong. Who should I believe, the Bible or Bill? And in response to this question, O'Reilly got a bit defensive. You know, he said, well, if you want to take the Bible literally, you're free to do that. That's your business. I'm not going to. And you can see in that case that, that that language there is not speaking about the Bible's interpretation. It's speaking about the Bible's truthfulness. The question in that kind of situation is not, how should we interpret the Bible and the various kinds of literature within it? The question is, is the Bible true? And often in our culture, when people say we can't take the Bible literally, what they mean is that it's not entirely true. It's not unerring in all that it says. There are errors in the Bible. There are some things that the Bible says that you should not believe to be true. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus have to say about the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture? Well, here in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and he prays that God would sanctify them in his truth. So Jesus is about to die, rise, ascend to heaven, go to the Father, and be therefore physically separated from his disciples. And so he's, he's praying for them. He's he loves them, and he's got this desire for them as he's preparing to leave them. He desires that they be sanctified. Now, the word sanctify means to be set apart as holy. 
Okay? It's, it's God's will for, for all of his people, for all of us who trust in him, to be set apart, to be pure, to be sanctified. But then the Bible uses this word sanctification in different ways at times. Sometimes when this word sanctification is used, it's speaking about what theologians call positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is what takes place in the life of a believer the moment that the Holy Spirit begins to indwell them and they're united to Christ. In the moment of a person's new birth and conversion, they are set apart, they are holy, they are sanctified completely. This is why Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, a church that's like so messed up, so filled with sin and in desperate need of growth and repentance in so many ways, In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he calls them those sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? He can say that because they used to belong to the world, but now they belong to Jesus and his people. They used to belong to the kingdom of darkness. Now they belong to the kingdom of God's beloved son. They used to be in Adam, but now they're in Christ. They are made holy simply because of the one that they belong to. They are positionally sanctified. And the, true, the same is true of each and every single believer in Jesus Christ here this morning. It's an amazing truth. And then sometimes the Bible uses this word sanctification to talk about what we call progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification takes place in a single moment that a person is united to Christ and it's fixed. It doesn't change. It lasts for all of eternity, for every believer, and it doesn't change at all. Progressive sanctification, though, is the process of a person becoming more and more like Christ. Progressive sanctification is your growth in personal holiness. It's it's a deepening of repentance and faith in your heart. It's, It's your growth in knowing the truth and in being conformed to the truth in moral goodness. It's a believer growing in Christ's likeness. And this is a process that lasts your whole life long. The Apostle Paul speaks of sanctification in this sense in places like Romans 6.19 when he's exhorting people, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That's progressive sanctification. That's growth in Christ-likeness and righteousness. And here, Jesus seems to be praying for the latter. Those he's praying for have already been united to him through faith, so he's not praying for something that's already taken place in their lives, positional sanctification. Instead, he's praying that his own would would grow in personal holiness, that they would grow in repentance and goodness, that they would become more and more like himself in knowledge and wisdom and character, that they would be more and more characterized by the beauty of holiness. And verse 18 shows us that Jesus is asking this for his disciples so that they would be equipped for their mission of representing him in the world and bearing witness to the truth of his gospel. We're going to get to that later. For now, I want to draw your attention to the means through which this sanctification takes place. It takes place through what? The truth. And that just begs the question, what Pontius Pilate asks Jesus in John 18, what is truth? Jesus tells us in the very next sentence when he prays, your word is truth. Your word 
It's truth. God, our, our Father, the, the sacred writings that you have inspired and preserved for us as your people, your word is truth. Our growth in Christ's likeness for the purpose of representing him in the world takes place through knowing the truth, the truth about God, the truth about his will, about ourselves, about Christ, about salvation, about the world. And that truth is revealed for us in the trustworthy word of God. And notice here that Jesus, he doesn't merely say that God's word is true. It is. It's a necessary inference, but, but he goes further than that. Jesus says that God's word is not merely true, it's truth. Meaning that the the, the Bible doesn't merely conform to some standard of truth outside itself. No, no, it's not merely true in that sense. That could be said about the car manual in in your glove compartment right now. Those can be true. The Bible is true, but it's more, it's truth. Which is to say that the Bible is the standard of truth by which all other truth claims in this world are judged against. The Bible is absolutely, authoritatively true in all its claims and promises and commands. The Bible is true truth. That's what Jesus has to say about the Bible. It's true. It's truth. Now, if, if, if that's the claim, if the Bible is true, if, if the Bible is truth, if the Bible's not a collection of ancient myths that are helpful, but not true, but rather that it's true, that it's true truth, if that's the claim, is that a claim we can trust? Is that a claim we can be confident in? Is, is it credible? Is that a claim we can be confident in as Christians? That's the next question we want to seek to ask and answer. Let's just start by acknowledging here that I'm going to try to answer that question with the Bible, okay? So I'm trying to show the Bible's credibility and reliability with the Bible, and that might be a problem for some, right? That, That in one sense, we're almost kind of using circular reasoning to defend our trust in the Bible's truthfulness. However, one of the things I just want to point out to you is that it's a little secret, everybody does this. Everybody. I mean, for example, ask a rationalist who trusts in their own ability to reason to know what's true. And you'll find that the reason they trust in their own reason to guide them into what's true is because they find it to be reasonable. Or those who trust in their feelings to guide them into truth. If you do any bit of inquiry as to why that is, you'll find. Because it just feels right to follow your feelings. If you find someone who trusts in human tradition to guide them into what is true and right and good, whether it's religious or familial or cultural traditions, and you ask people why they trust in tradition in that way, you'll find that it's, well, because that's just the way people have always done things. In other words, because it's traditional. Maybe you've heard the story of that little boy whose teacher asked him why the earth doesn't just fall into space. I assume she wanted to hear something about gravity, you know. Instead, she asked the question, the little boy said, well, it's because it's sitting on a turtle's back. And the teacher asked him, well, why doesn't the turtle fall? And the little boy said, well, it's sitting on another turtle's back. And that's how it is. It's a great answer. 
And the teacher said, well, why doesn't that one fall? And he said, well, obviously, it's just turtles all the way down. And one of the things we need to recognize is that for everyone, for Christians, for rationalists, for postmoderns, for traditionalists, for naturalists, for Muslims, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, for everyone, at some point, it ends up being turtles all the way down. However, the Bible, I think, offers a very compelling case for its own truthfulness. There's, there's so much evidence for the Bible's reliability and truthfulness, it's astounding. Some of that evidence is internal, some of it's external. As it pertains to external evidence, depending on which portion of the Bible we're talking about, much of the Bible has been corroborated by outside historical documentation and archaeological evidence, those sorts of things. That's all worth considering. But for our time this morning, I'd like to focus more on internal evidence. The Bible has a self-authenticating witness to it, and if you're a Bible reader, you know what I'm talking about. If you spent any significant amount of time reading the Bible, you likely know just how compelling it is. It's both objectively and subjectively in our experience. It's just so compelling. And so there's all sorts of evidence we could present here. And I, I edited so much out. I'm, I really want to honor your time, but there's so much we could look at here. I just want to look at two particular pieces of internal evidence together this morning. I had a very hard time choosing what kind of evidence or proofs I wanted to look at this morning. There's so much, but I, I don't want to keep you here all day. If you have any questions concerning resources or help of trying to answer this question more fully, please don't hesitate to ask. I'd love to point you in the direction of just a few helpful resources. But for now, two pieces of internal evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness and truthfulness. One is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. John Piper rightly says of this reality, it should be said that the sheer fact of fulfilled prophecy is a revelation of the glory of God in Christ. Not just the way that it happens, but that it happens. This amazing fact has been used by God to awaken many people to the reality of his work and inspiring the scriptures. And he's exactly right. There there are, uh, by one count, 1,817 prophecies in Holy Scripture. And about half of those have already been fulfilled. The other half are prophecies about future events even still. There are around 900 fulfilled prophecies found in Holy Scripture. You know, they often come with such amazing detail as well. One that might come to mind, we just looked at a few months ago, was in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Mark and his foretelling of the temple's destruction in 70 AD. We looked at that in Mark just a few months ago. And I also can't help but think about one example Isaiah 45.1, Isaiah 45.1 foretold 150 years before the fact that a king, and it names him, a king named Cyrus of the Persians would subdue the nations and Babylon and Israel and release Israelites to go back to their homeland from exile. 150 years before, before they even went into exile, God foretold through Isaiah this event of their return in the very name of the king who would bring it about. I mean, imagine someone foretelling the president of the United States 150 years from now in nailing it. That's better, that's a better, that's more impressive than all of those, you know, prophecies that you find in The Simpsons. This, was, this would give someone credibility, wouldn't it? Cyrus, named and foretold in the way 
in this way in Isaiah 45.1. Related is another example of fulfilled prophecy. Jeremiah 25 and 29 and Daniel 9. See, foretold that the people of Judah were going to be sent by God into exile for 70 years. And what do we find confirmed in history and find in Scripture? 2 Chronicles 36.20 and 21. Year 605 BC, Judah goes into exile. And then in 539 through 536 BC, Cyrus comes into power. The people of Israel are progressively sent back to the land to rebuild and dwell there again 69, 70 years. Prophecy fulfilled. There are many other examples we could give here, most important of which are the prophecies and fulfillments concerning Christ. Speaking conservatively, around 300 fulfilled prophecies in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just thinking about some of the truths we've seen in God's Word together over the last couple of years as we've been walking through certain sermon series here. We've seen that it was prophesied that Jesus would be a descendant of Abraham and David. And he came as the seed of those men. We've seen that Jesus was, was born of a virgin in Matthew 1. It's prophesied in Isaiah 7. It's prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And he was. After being born in Bethlehem, it was, it was foretold that his family would flee to Egypt, and they did. It was prophesied that his ministry would later be preceded by a forerunner. John the Baptist served that role. It was foretold that his ministry would, would then later begin in Galilee, and it did. It was foretold that he would be a gentle, meek, humble servant in Isaiah. And the eyewitnesses bear account that he was. Isaiah also foretold that Jesus would miraculously heal blind eyes and deaf ears and mute mouths. And, again, the eyewitnesses tell us that he did. Isaiah foretold that he would be an anointed teacher who would proclaim God's gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did. It was foretold that he would enter as king of Jerusalem on a donkey. And he did. Oh, there it was foretold that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by one of his own, and he was. It was foretold that when his time came to suffer, his disciples would abandon him, his closest friends and family would stand far off, and they did. It was foretold that Gentiles would pierce his hands and his feet even before the, the, the crucifixion was a common means of execution, and they did. It was foretold that he would suffer in order to take upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve and serve as a sin offering and substitution for his people, and he did. It was foretold that his crucifiers would cast lots for his clothing, and they did. Likewise, that people would mock him, down to the exact phrases in Psalm 22, and they did. It's prophesied that in his death he would be buried by a rich man, and he was. It's foretold that his flesh would not see corruption, that he would be raised from the dead, and that he would ascend to the right hand of our Father as king and high priest, and he did. And it was foretold that the truth of this gospel would begin to be proclaimed throughout all the earth so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as Lord would be saved. 
And we've seen that taking place over the last 2,000 years and still to this day. These and, and many more prophecies concerning the Christ have been fulfilled, which is part of the internal evidence for Scripture's truthfulness. Another internal piece of evidence is, is that Jesus himself viewed and taught that the Bible is true, that it's true truth, as he says here in John 17. Matthew 4.4, Jesus refers to the Bible as that which comes from the mouth of God. He viewed the scriptures as being the perfect and true word of God. In John 10.35, Jesus says that scripture cannot be broken. In other words, it can't be untrue. That would be impossible because God himself would then be a liar. Moreover, in his ministry, throughout his ministry, See him teaching throughout the Gospels, quoting the Bible all the time. He quotes the Pentateuch, the historical writings, the prophets, the Psalms, various biblical texts, treating them all as the true and authoritative and trustworthy word of God. Jesus views the Bible as being absolutely and authoritatively true. Now, to take him at his word on that, we do need to trust and believe that Jesus is who he said he is, right? That he's the son of God, right? I, I mean, if Jesus is just an admirable earthly teacher like Gandhi or Plato or something, then sure, some of what he said might be helpful, but there's no reason to accept absolutely everything he said. And thus, we could take or leave what he says about the Bible. However, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, if he is who he said he is, then whether or not we like what he said and taught, we've got to submit to it. Because it'd be true and right, right because he, he knows better. He's the son of God. He knows better than we do. And so this question is all important. Is Jesus the son of God? And each of the four gospels seek to make the case to readers that he is. That they, they make this case clearly by showing us what Jesus claimed for himself, that he is the son of God. They seek to make this case by showing us his, his authoritative teaching, his powerful miracles, and most importantly, by his resurrection from the dead. And that's really the hinge, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then his claims, his teachings, his identifying himself as Lord, as Son of God, it's all vindicated by his victorious resurrection over the power of death. We saw this just a few Sundays ago, and we looked at Mark's account of the resurrection in Mark 16. And we looked at the evidence and arguments for Christ's resurrection in a bit more depth then, so I won't go into all of that this morning. But still, this question is, is very important to our purposes here this morning. Is Jesus the Son of God? Has he been raised from the dead to prove it? And to answer those questions, we need to figure out if the Gospels are right about Jesus. Are they, rather, are they untrue? Are they as some professing evangelicals seem to believe, myths that contain some helpful moral lessons, but that are not actually literally historically true. Two indications that the Gospels are not myths. First, they don't read like myths. Right? We just read the Gospel of Mark over the last two years together, and what did we see in it? Saw that it read like a historical account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Right? Remember how Mark would use specific names of eyewitnesses to events recorded in the gospel. In Mark 15, we saw he used names like Alexander and Rufus. And he did that because he, he was writing for the church in Rome, and he wanted those for whom he was writing to be able to go ask these two guys what they knew about the events recorded therein, to test and see if they were true or not. Remember how Mark would 
would include really specific details about events recorded in the gospel. Like in the crucifixion account, he included specific times. How Jesus was put on the cross at about 9 a.m. And then at noon, darkness fell over the land. And at 3 p.m., Jesus was taken off the cross. These are not myth-like details. C.S. Lewis was a medieval scholar, knew his way around myths and legends. He speaks to this charge against the Gospels in his book, Christian Reflections. Listen to what he says about the Gospels. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like, and none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writers without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't, simp- who doesn't see this simply does not know how to read. It's a little rude at the end. This point stands. The Gospels don't read like myths. No, they're meant to serve as reportage on historical events that actually happened. Second, the Gospels, they were written far too early in history to have developed into mythical accounts of Jesus. Some have falsely claimed that and believed that the Gospels were written so long after the time of Christ that they weren't written based on eyewitness accounts of those who were actually there, that an elaborate game of phone tag about Jesus took place throughout the years, and, 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 and that eventually those stories developed into legends and myths and, and were later written down and recorded. However, this is simply not the case. The Gospels were written within a span of 30 to 60 years after the, the events recorded therein. The, apost- the epistles in the New Testament were written even before that, and they speak about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But 30 to 60 years is obviously a short enough time for those who witness these events to help record them, and if need be, to challenge them if they were wrong. Thus, they're obviously not written as myths, and they were written too early to have developed into myths by that time. They simply aren't myths. But then there's the question of the Gospels not being myths, but they're being lies and fabrications about Christ's life by the apostles. Some have thought that the Gospels, perhaps they're not myths, but perhaps instead the, the disciples developed these narratives as a way of establishing this new religious movement in which they could take leadership, gain status, power, wealth. This doesn't add up either. And two reasons. First, if that were the case, the Gospels would be far too counterproductive. Again, remember Mark's Gospel with me over the last year or two. The apostles are continually depicted as complete imbeciles who just don't get it. They all abandon Jesus like cowards and weaklings whenever his betrayal and suffering comes. And moreover, the ladies who follow Jesus are recorded as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus in each of the Gospels. That would have been far too counterproductive because women were not viewed as credible witnesses at this time. Their testimony would not have even been accepted in court. The Gospels are just too counterproductive to be lies. Second, all of the apostles suffered deeply for their testimony concerning Christ and his teaching, his life and death and resurrection. Read the book of Acts. The apostles are arrested, imprisoned, beat, stoned. From history, we learn that they were killed on account of their testimony. Some crucified, some burned, some clubbed or stabbed to death. 
The only one recorded to have died a natural death was John, who was exiled to the barren island of of Patmos. And, And if all that was the case, why would they have suffered so if they knew the stories about Christ were a lie? Why would they go through such hell if they themselves weren't convinced that he's the son come from heaven? No, the Gospels are not myths, they're not lies, they're historical accounts based on real eyewitness testimonies. Therefore, we have reason to believe that Jesus is the risen and vindicated Son of God. And therefore, that what he said about the Bible is true and right. This is internal evidence of the truthfulness of God's Word. Friends, there's more evidence we could spend a lot of time looking at here. We'll need to move on, but just one piece of application before we do. I'd like to add, to our non-Christian friends in the room, if this evidence has interested you, you're still not sure, still not convinced of the Bible's absolute and authoritative truthfulness, I would just invite you, read it. Read the Bible. Find out for yourself if it's true. If nothing else, it will lead to an educational experience. But even more, if you might just discover the most precious and important truth in the entire universe. Just check it out for yourself. Along those lines, Christians, if you run into people who, who think the Bible is untrue, invite them to read it with you. As, as some of you well know, oftentimes when you start reading the Bible, it, it's so compelling. It starts reading you. It seems to be confronting what's wrong with you and leading in you into this new kind of life and way of living. And most of the time when people say the Bible isn't true, that it's full of contradictions and fabrications... After a bit of questioning, you find out that they've never actually read the Bible. Really good question to ask when people say the Bible is full of contradictions and fabrications. It's just, can you show me some? Most of the time they can't, and even if they think they can, there's usually some simple explanation to show the contradiction is just not there. And what's great about it is it gets people reading the Bible. For those who don't believe the Bible to be true, the best thing that could happen is that they start reading it and just let the Bible speak for itself. And when that happens, I think we'll find that we can be confident that the Bible is indeed true. Now to close, what what difference does this all make? Is this all just intellectual abstraction or does this make a real, true, lasting difference in our lives? Absolutely it does. First, it makes this massive difference. Again, Jesus prays for his disciples to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. It leads to our sanctification. He wants his own to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. And that, he says, takes place through the word of God. Notice the primacy of God's word here. You know, he, he, Jesus might have prayed that his people be sanctified through prayer. That'd be understandable. He might have prayed that his people be sanctified through baptism and holy communion. That'd be understandable as well. He he might have prayed that his people be sanctified through their community with and their discipleship of one another. And that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? All of those means of grace are essential and important. But Jesus' prayer here reveals the primacy of of God's word. The the word of God is the primary instrument through which God intends to sanctify his people and make us holy. How does it do that? Let's count the ways. The Bible 
I mean, it accesses the very depths of our hearts, exposing our sins and faults, leading us to repentance. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It cuts to the quick. It pierces the heart. It fillets us and brings us to conviction and thus beckons us to confession and repentance. Moreover, it's in the Scriptures that we behold Christ and are thus transformed by beholding him, right? John 5, 39, Jesus says to a group of men who he's arguing with, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, right? The scriptures bear witness to Christ. They reveal Christ in them. We behold Christ with the eyes of our souls, And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it's in beholding the glory of the Lord that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. It's by beholding Christ that we are transformed and sanctified to be more and more like him. In the Bible, it's, it's Christ that we behold there. The Apostle Peter, he tells us in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we have to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it we may grow up into salvation, that we may grow up into our sanctification. Psalm 119, verse 9, King David prays to God, how can a young man keep his way pure? Can you hear the desperation in that question? Young men, do you want to know how to keep your way pure? You want to grow in sanctification and holiness, not just for young men, but for old men and for young women and young, the old women and for children. Do you want to know how to keep your life pure and sanctified? David says it's by guarding it according to your word. More could be said, but friends, hopefully you see here, if you want to grow, if you want to know Christ more deeply, if you want to be made like him more fully, if you want to enjoy his presence more intimately, in other words, if you want to be sanctified, then give yourself to knowing and learning and applying this book. Be a devoted and dedicated student of this book. Fill your mind and heart with this truth. Read it every day. Listen to it proclaimed every week. Study it with your community. Dedicate yourself to knowing and abiding in this book and its truth, and by its truth, you will be sanctified. But then we're sanctified for a purpose, friends. Our sanctification, Jesus shows us here, takes place for an express purpose of living our lives as faithful witnesses, for being sent. It equips us, Jesus shows us here, to live sent lives. Some of the reason Jesus prayed for his disciples to be sanctified in the truth, and I'm going to speed this up here. The reason he prayed for his disciples to be sanctified in the truth of God's word is for the sacred purpose of mission. We see this clearly in verse 18, which says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So just as Christ, the sacred, the holy one, was sent into the world by the Father, so he he desires for his disciples to be sanctified through his word for the purpose of being sent into the world. Friends, 
part of the reason that we give ourselves to knowing and understanding and applying God's word every week like this, part of the reason that we're doing a series like this, part of the reason it's so important for us to not drift away from the truth of God's word. It's not just so that we can fill our heads with a lot of knowledge of what this word says. It's so that we would be sanctified. And being sanctified, be sent into this world. Part of the reason we preach and go through a series like this is so that you can be sent into this world, one, ready to articulate the gospel in ways that are clear and compelling and truthful, and then also so that you're empowered by it to live lives that adorn that gospel message that you're proclaiming as you're sanctified through the word. We want you to go from this place into your homes, into your schools, into your workplaces, into your neighborhoods, and even to the ends of the earth, articulating this word of truth and living lives that adorn this word of truth. Declaring this truth with your mouth and displaying this truth with your life. That's what this world desperately needs. So to that end, don't drift. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith, to the truth of God's word, being sanctified by it, being sent into this world with it. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the table, seal this word, this gospel, in our hearts that we might articulate it to the world with our mouths and adorn it before the world with our lives. All this we pray to the glory and fame of the name of Jesus. Amen.